Welcome to Next Steps, a podcast from Blackhawk Church in Madison, Wisconsin, where together we'll take next steps to grow in our relationship with Christ, to be formed into the kind of people He's created us to be, and to better love and serve those around us. Let's jump in. Well, hey, everyone. This is Chris Kopp from the Next Steps podcast. Hope everyone's having a great week so far. Um, Hey, today we have something special for you all, a bonus episode of sorts, where we are releasing a conversation that Pastor Chris Dolson had with Dr. Rick Lindroth about a week or so ago as part of the Science and Faith course that Pastor Chris has been doing here at Blockhawk Church. And in this conversation, it's kind of the second half of the conversation that they had a couple weeks ago. Um, Dr. Lindroth is going to be talking about climate change, uh, what science says about climate change, uh, what we can personally do to, to care for creation in this way, and then whether he thinks there's any hope for kind of a different or a better future. Dr. Lindroth uh, has been part of the Blackhawk Church community for a long time, so it's really unique that we get to to hear from him. He's an expert in this field, and he is a part of our community. He's been following Jesus for a long time. Uh, In fact, he was on our elder board for, uh, gosh, a combined 20 years or so. Um, He and his wife, Nancy, started attending Blackhawk Church in 1985. That's a long time, so he's been around for a while. Uh, He has a PhD in ecology from the University of Illinois. He was a postdoc fellow at UW-Madison and spent most of his career as a full professor at UW-Madison right here downtown on campus. Uh, And even um, from 2010 to 16, he was the associate dean for research at the UW-Madison. So a long, um, yeah, long career in the sciences and in ecology and a long time uh, as a Christ follower. Um, He's motivated to to study because of his faith in Jesus. So unique that we get to hear from him on this topic. So what you're about to hear, again, is the second half of that conversation. At the very end, they'll do some Q&A. You probably won't be able to hear the questions that are being asked, though some of the time they're kind of um, rephrasing them or they're kind of summarizing the question before they answer. Um, But listen in. Uh, Hope you enjoy this conversation. Aldo Leopold, the quote that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, used this phrase, um, a world of wounds. And that's exactly what we are now occupying. So let me give you just a couple of examples of environmental degradation uh, that are really significant and really important and impact all of our lives. And we could go on for days about this. I'm just going to touch on three and very, very, very briefly. and we can come back around to them later this evening in the Q&A if you'd like. There is this concept of planetary boundaries, before I get into the few examples, that has gotten, that has taken hold in the environmental and ecological literature. Boundaries are safe spaces for human uh, uh, function within the Earth. Does this... Does this have a laser pointer? No. No. All right. Okay. I had a 30-foot arm. I look at the diagram in the right. Okay. Concentric circles. The dashed blue line with the green inside. That's a safe oper- operating place with respect to nine critical functions that the Earth does for us. Flows of energy, acidification of the ocean, atmosphere, ozone, freshwater, climate change biosphere integrity, that's biodiversity, land use, 
novel entities. That's things like pollution, et cetera. Okay, so nine areas. Of the nine, we've already exceeded the safe operating zone in six, according to science. So let me just touch on a couple of those, a few examples. And the first one is the loss of biodiversity, biological diversity. We're now in what scientists are calling the sixth major extinction of life on Earth. The natural rate of extinction is roughly one to five species per year. We're now somewhere 1,000 to 10,000 species per year, approximating one per hour. 40% of plant species are at risk of extinction. We've seen population declines of mammals, of fish, of birds, of reptiles that have averaged 60% over the last 40 years. 41% of insect species are considered to be uh, in decline or endangered. And so we're seeing a loss of enormous number of species that exist on Earth were created or evolved, whatever your perspective is, but that are God's creatures that sing him praise and are going extinct. Mm. And they provide services for humans that are very important that we don't normally think of. Pollination of our crops. What percent of our medical drugs are derived from plant products? Anyone know? About 73, 74% are derived. And as these go extinct, we have fewer and fewer species to draw from. So the loss of biodiversity is a critical problem that we're experiencing today. Another is invasive species. Over the last 60 years, the cost of invasive species in the United States has uh, gone up to about $1.2 trillion, roughly $21 billion a year that we're spending because of species moving from places where they belong to places where they don't belong. For example, here in Wisconsin, Lake Mendota now has, what are those on the upper left? Zebra mussels, right? If any of you read the Go Big Read book a few years ago, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, uh, it, the Great Lakes ecosystem has been subjected to one species invasion after another, after another, that just basically decimated that just ecosystem. Um, yeah, that's a great book. Um, can you remember the exact title? I can't. It's the death and life of the Great Lakes, and I can't remember the author. Yeah, I know you know yeah. him too. I can't. Somebody can pull it up, but yeah, yeah it's a great it's book. It's a great book, and it's a great audio. I was just talking to someone down here about it was a great audio book. Also, uh, we just my wife and I just learned a ton. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. The Great Lakes are such it's a gift. great history about yeah. the Great Lakes, all yeah. the way back from pre-settlement. It's a great book. Yeah. yeah. Um, all kinds of, of invasive species that you uh, should be aware of, if you, even if you're just living here in Madison, uh, that are impacting our lives today. How many of you heard of the emerald ash borer, right? Yes, we're losing all of our ash trees. Virtually 100% of the ash trees in Michigan, now in Wisconsin, have been or will die because of this invasive insect, unless they're continuously treated with insecticide, which we're not going to do for forest ecosystems. Even in agricultural systems, that those are soybean aphids, which just appeared about mm, 15, maybe 20 years ago in the upper Midwest from China. So invasive species cost us enormous amounts of money and disrupt ecosystem function. So that's a second example of environmental degradation. The third that I'll talk about just very briefly is climate change. Now, the subject of climate change is controversial in many arenas. It's controversial in commerce. 
It's controversial in politics, for sure. It's controversial in uh, the religious realm. The one realm in which human-caused climate change is not controversial whatsoever is science. So what I'm going to tell you tonight is science's perspective on climate change, and then we can talk about the political ramifications some if you want later. So what does the science say about climate change? It's real. It used to be that people were denying that it's real. That hardly, hardly anyone is saying anymore it's not real. Now the, the argument has shifted from, well, it may be real, but who knows what's causing it. Well, it's us. Uh, just a few minutes ago, Brian was talking to me. The Earth has undergone changes in climate for millions of years as long as it's, as it's existed. How do we know that this is due to human interference and not just some natural factors? And that's an excellent question and one that is used to challenge climate scientists by climate change denialists. How do we know that the Earth has gone through changes in climate over the last thousands to millions of years? By the work of scientists, climate scientists. What are those very scientists are telling us as is the cause today? Historically, the causes have been changes in volcanism, changes in the Earth's orbit, in the Earth's wobble, uh, the Milankovitch cycle, which leads to, um, to ice ages. All kinds of things lead to changes in the climate. What do those very same scientists that we trust to tell us about ancient climate, what are they telling us is causing it today? One thing and one thing only, the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And that's because they are measuring solar insulation. They're measuring volcanism. They're measuring all these other factors, and those are pretty much flat. The one thing that is changing over the last 100, 150 years is greenhouse gas accumulation, which is going like this. Actually, it's going more like this. So it's us. It's bad. Does anybody recognize that picture in the upper left? That's a little community near us. Anyone know what it is? Black Earth. Got a date? August 2018. 19, yeah. Yep. Uh, it, it, it flooded. Uh, we flooded. A lot of Madison flooded. Okay. Can we attribute that to climate change alone? No. But what we can say is that these extreme events are becoming much, much more common and will continue to become increasingly common into the future. So it's us. It's bad. Uh, the federal government has published all kinds of, of papers on how climate change is affecting food security, military security, uh, natural resources, you name it. Everything is being impacted. It's bad, and unfortunately, it's going to get worse. If we stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, the climate would continue to worsen for the next 100 to 200 years because of these built-in lag times. So the climate change that we're experiencing now is because of emissions that we emitted 20, 30, 40 years ago, not that we emitted within the last 10 years. It takes the climate system decades to centuries to equilibrate to the amount of greenhouse gas that we're putting into the, into the air. The Paris Accord, the climate accord that was signed by most countries in the world in 2015, committed ourselves to keeping the amount of increase to two degrees C. We've already increased by one, so that gives us a one-degree differential. That was not a scientific, scientifically set goal. That was a politically achievable goal. The scientists argued and put forth 1.5, and that was adopted as an aspirational goal. 
Just last week, major publication came out from the United Nations that said basically there is now no longer a credible pathway to a 1.5 degree C increase. We're probably on target for about two and a half to three degrees by the end of the century. So double of what the scientists would like to see. That made the news last week. I don't know yeah. how many of you saw yeah. that. Um, but there's hope if we act now, but the emphasis has to be on now. We need transformational change very, very quickly. What the scientists have been arguing is that we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by the year 2030. Well, the clock is ticking. We're now eight years away. We're not anywhere close to cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half. What will happen is we'll probably overshoot those goals and then hopefully we'll have enough technology and other opportunities on board to then basically take up more and more uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, in, into the future. We'll get into some of those in a few minutes. Okay, this is back to you, Chris. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, and uh, that book is The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, Dan Egan, E-G-A-N. Great, uh, great book. Uh, we must be loving and speak uh, to the heart. Unfortunately, in the United States, um, uh, this can be difficult because the discussion on human-caused changes to climate has become politicized. Uh, this reality has kept Americans from being able to make a strategy to move forward. To many people, this issue has become a partisan issue. And this is sad. It's not always been uh, that way. So Senator John uh, McCain would be a classic uh, example uh, this is a quote from the Wall Street Journal right after he died. Along with his friend, Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman, McCain sponsored the first Climate Stewardship Act in 2003, which would have capped U.S. carbon dioxide emissions at the 2000 level. The bill failed, but that didn't stop McCain. The question, he said in 2005, is how much damage will be done before we start taking concrete action? After he won the Republican presidential nomination, one of his first major speeches was on climate change and clean energy. Yes, only a decade ago, both major party presidential candidates supported limits on carbon uh, pollution. Following McCain, conservatives can still move towards climate change, even if they are not convinced that it's man-made. So whether you're completely convinced that human actions are warming the planet or not, there's still good economic and other reasons to act now. Rising sea levels, decreasing pH of the ocean, movement of animals up mountains and toward the poles, loss of coral reefs and increases in the severity of extreme events, fire and crop production are all well documented. We have to respond to them regardless of the cause. The activities that produce warming emissions also cause other problems, air pollution, burned forests, damage at fossil fuel extraction sites or during transportation. So the cost of solving one problem can result in the saving in multiple areas. This is from the National Association of Evangelicals. So, uh, Rick, this is your slide. You can just go ahead. It's really unfortunate that this particular topic has become so politicized because um, it wasn't always that way. I mean, think in the early 70s, Republicans were all about environmental care. I mean, the, the Environmental Protection Agency was created under a Republican president, right? And there's all kinds of important uh, legislation that passed. So 
Something happened in the 80s and 90s that we don't have time to get into that, that really caused this polarization. This is a, I find this really uh, interesting, so I'm gonna take a moment and, and ask a question, have you think about it. Um, what demographic factor do you think is the best predictor of climate change denialism? And your first question is, what's a demographic factor? Demographic factor is age, education, location, race, religion, all those traits that make us up as individuals. What do you think is the best predictor of whether a person is going to agree or disagree with the concept of anthropogenic climate change? Any ideas? Toss out. Religion? Okay. Uh, others? Location. Vo location. Vocation. Okay. Vocation. Education, anyone? All right. The best predictor is political affiliation. Not even political ideology. It's political affiliation. What party do you belong to? And it's true that religion is a indicator. And in fact, the more evangelical uh, re religious groups tend to cluster in the denialist end of the spectrum, which is interesting and difficult for some of us. But further sociological research showed that it's not because they are evangelically religious, it's that evangelicals are old and conservative. And that's why they tend to deny climate change. Not because of their religion, but because they are old and conservative. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to you, Chris. So you wanna talk about- Oh, sorry. Yep. So, that's okay. But the good news, there are a number of very conservative uh, movements gaining hold. And this one I wanted to highlight by Bob Inglis, a former U.S. representative from South Carolina. It's called Republic N, and they call themselves the home of the eco-right. We are the eco-right, a balance to the environmental left. We stand together because we believe in the power of American free enterprise and innovation to solve climate change. Together, we encourage, embolden, and applaud conservative climate leadership. Amen. So if you find yourself politically conservative and don't know where to turn to, yeah, I would say this is a great group to go for some resources and information. Great. So the, the idea here, from our perspective, would be to work to make it not a nonpartisan issue. It should be non, uh, yeah, not not a partisan issue, but a nonpartisan. There are multiple reasons to work across the political aisle on climate action, including that both sides promote solutions from their point of view. For example, the cons uh, conservation coalition the largest politically conservative environmental group in the United States, produced the Market Environmentalism Academy, an educational platform hosting a series of short courses about pro-market solutions to environmental problems. Evangelical Environmental Network connects pro-life concerns with environmental problems and advances solutions that defend the health of children as, as well at all uh, life stages. Some ways we can make a difference. Learn, uh, start with the Bible, Read at least one of the resources that we've uh, listed. It would be best to do that with uh, other people and just read uh, one of the books together and have discussions uh, on that particular book. Pray, pray for discernment when sorting through the confusing messages about climate change. 
Pray for Blackhawk and our leaders. Pray for other churches in our area. Pray for our government officials. Pray for the earth. (laughs) Ask God to show you a next step. Serve. Reach out to neighbors who are in need. Serve with other organizations that are both faith-based and secular. They're working um, on climate change. So the good news, and there is a lot of good news in this arena, good news is we know what the problem is and we know how to fix it. What if we couldn't figure out what the problem was or we couldn't figure out how to fix it? Then we'd really be in trouble. But we know what the problem is and we know how to fix it. And there have been multiple massive productions uh, by various groups that provide roadmaps for how to address the climate impacts that we're experiencing and how to accommodate, how to mitigate, how to ameliorate, and how to prepare for the future. So we've got lots of information out there available to us. This is one of my favorite sites, Project Drawdown, drawdown drawdown.org. If you're interested in what uh, various arenas of human society should do with respect to addressing climate change, go to, go to drawdown.org. They've got information on the electricity sector, food and agriculture, industry, transportation, buildings, on and on and on and on. And it's really good information. So like I said, there's information available. Other good news is uh, this from the, uh, the most recent IPC sixth assessment report. came out just uh, earlier this year. Um, they say that, unfortunately, it's political will that stands in the way of meeting, uh, the, meeting the Paris Agreement, the restriction of climate change to 1.5 to 2 degrees. And that's a big obstacle. But if we can, if we can muster... If we can muster enough will, if we can beat off the political foes against us, we have many different associated benefits with addressing climate change. For example, it can provide a stronger economy, cleaner air, improved health, improved energy security, and improved water and food security. So there are many, many benefits of addressing climate change. So what will effective climate change action require? Unfortunately, absolutely fully transformational change at all levels of human experience. We're not going to be able to address it by buying green products and picking up litter and recycling our trash. It's going to require absolute fundamental transformation, wholesale change as rapidly as we can do it at all levels, starting with us as individuals, as families, faith-based communities, our schools, corporations, and governments. Now, unfortunately, something else that has been politicized is the best way to approach climate change solutions. There's one political camp that emphasizes the role of individuals and individual choice, and another camp that emphasizes the role of government involvement. And what it's going to take is both. Individual action versus systemic action is a false dichotomy. Both are required. Systemic problems will require systemic solutions. Those of you who are old enough, like Chris and I, can probably remember back to the 50s, not 50s, I can't even remember that, 60s, 70s, when rivers used to catch on fire. 
and air pollution was terrible. We had acid rain. We had heavily polluted waterways. We had um, species going extinct right and left. There were massive, massive environmental problems that were addressed, and many of them have been substantially corrected. Our waterways are much cleaner today. Our air is much cleaner. There has been a whole lot of improvement in our, in our environment in the last 50 years, a, a massive amount of improvement. How much of that has been done without federal intervention? Zero. All of those required federal legislation to address because they are big problems that cover multiple states. So we're going to need federal uh, intervention as well as individual responsibility. So individual changes make it a lifestyle. People say, well, in terms of the broader topic of creation care, what should we be doing? What can I do? There is a, an author and naturalist in California that I follow. He's uh, just a great, great naturalist. Somebody recently asked him, what should we do? His response was, go put your feet in a river. That's what you should do. Well, what does that mean? A necessary antecedent to creation care is creation connection. And most of us have lost that. So the more we reconnect to the natural world around us, the more we're naturally inclined to take care of it. So one of the first things I tell people is reestablish that connection with nature. And it doesn't have to take a lot. Research has shown that we can rewire our brains to love our partners better by a 20-second hug once a day. We can rewire our brains to become more fully loving to embrace gratitude by having a thought of gratitude and purposefully, intentionally holding on to that thought for 20 seconds. That will rewire our neural pathways to make us people of gratitude. So what I suggest to people, if you want to connect to creation, step outside, look at the sky, look at a flower, look at a bird, Hold that thought 20 seconds once a day. It doesn't, it's not going to take a lot of time for you to do that. And that starts building, building appreciation and building habits that can lead to better and more fully developed lifestyles. Okay, so that's the connection piece. Learn, that's just what you're doing tonight. Thank you for coming. This is a great opportunity for you to learn, for us to learn, for us to learn from each other. Talk about it. Catherine Hayhoe, the, public, the author of one of the books that Chris mentioned, she says the most important thing you, do, you can do about climate change, talk about it. We don't talk about it enough. Talk about it with your families, with people in your life group, with your workmates. Act, and we will show you a few things we can all do. Um, and then, actually I suggested this, I was a little bit surprised didn't, Chris didn't take it out, so thank you for not taking it out. This is not partisan. You can vote with this in mind, and this is not a partisan statement. There are Democrats, there are Republicans, there are independents, but think about this when you make your decision at the voting booth as well. Think about these things. All right, so those are suggestions for individual change. And back to Chris, ways yeah. we can make a difference. Yeah, this is about uh, a carbon uh, footprint uh, it's the total amount of greenhouse, uh, carbon footprint is the total amount of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane uh, that are generated by our actions. 
The average uh, carbon footprint for a person in the United States is 16 tons, uh, one of the highest rates in the world. Globally, the average carbon footprint is close to four tons. To have the best chance uh, of avoiding uh, a two degrees uh, Celsius uh, rise in global temperatures, the average global carbon footprint per year needs to drop to under two tons by 2050. Lowering individual carbon footprints from 16 tons to two tons doesn't happen overnight. By making small changes to our action, like eating less meat, taking fewer connecting flights, and line drying our clothes, we start to make a big uh, difference. So you can calculate your carbon footprint uh, at this uh, site. It's gonna take a little bit of energy on your part to actually do that, but they will walk you through how you can actually calculate what your carbon footprint uh, is. And then uh, there's always little things uh, that we can do. And uh, um, I like these, I like this slide because it's just kind of a little reinforced. It's kind of like, oh, okay, I'm thinking, you know, you go back and turn the lights off, you know, and just little tiny things. It's kind of like the 20 second look. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, all right, I'm doing this. I'm training my feet to do these things because uh, I'm trying to be that person who cares. So there's just little tiny things. You have seen these before. Take the stairs you know, shut the windows, shorter showers, power down laptops, unplug, you know, keep room temperatures moderate. You go to his house, you could hang meat in his house, actually. <laughs> so they, they give you a little blanket when you go over to their house in the wintertime. They have little blankets and you sit down and uh, they say, you know, this is, yeah, we kind of, there you go. And, you know, once you start talking, he's got hot air, so it warms up uh, in the room, uh, you know, after a while. Uh, use fewer uh, or share appliances. Do uh, do full loads of laundry. So that's a tough one uh, for us because we were always, you know, doing little bits of laundry. But we started to mm -hmm. just put them in a, you know, put them in a laundry basket. Wait till it gets full and then pop them in there. There you go. I think that's the last slide. So let's take questions uh, right now. Uh, while uh, Rick's here, uh, who has questions? And what we'll do is try to repeat your question uh, if you can keep it. Uh, kind of short enough. Who's first? Go ahead, Brian. So the so, question is, yeah. uh, like, we're a small part in the United States, and other these massive countries like India and China and other massive countries, if they don't make changes, that's what you're mm -hmm. saying. If they don't make changes. What difference does it make for us, right? right. Oh, how, oh, how do yeah. we get them? Yeah, that's, yeah. You're right that we are just one, yeah. We're, we're one country of many. Historically, the U.S. has, has um, the amount of greenhouse gases the U.S. has produced has eclipsed any other nation on Earth. Now, currently, China is producing more than the U.S., but China is also racing ahead with technology for renewables probably faster, way faster than the U.S. is. How do we get them on board? I, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a politician. Um, yeah, um, we will need to. Uh, there are uh, international conferences, like one that's coming up this week, next week. The COP27, it's part of the UN, where parties from all the ma major nations come together and they hammer out these agreements like the Paris Climate Agreement. But they have to have some teeth and so far, they haven't had much teeth, and so countries commit, and then they don't follow through. 
So I, I, I wish I had a better answer. I don't have an answer. How do we get the other countries on board? Yeah. Uh, this doesn't, it sounds stupid, silly, but um, it shouldn't sound silly. We should walk and talk to the Lord about these things on a regular basis. And just as put it, make it part of your prayer life. Uh, he holds the leaders uh, all the, of the world in his hands and ask God to, you know, make it part of your regular prayer okay. commitment. Uh, yeah, next question. Uh, red shirt, go ahead. You want to repeat it? So what is the alternative to human-caused climate change? Um, there isn't one. <laughs> um, what, what, those, what, what, what those who would like to dismiss climate change or don't agree with it have been completely unable to answer is this question. How could the Earth experience the accumulation of greenhouse gases that we have, that you can measure, we can step, I have a lab instrument, I can step outside and measure it. How can the Earth accumulate these greenhouse gases and not warm up? They don't have an answer for that. It's just like, how could I put on that down jacket and not get a little bit warm? They've not been able to provide that answer. What they do is generally raise questions. So the advantage of the climate denialist camp is very similar and they're using the very same tactics as used by the tobacco industry in the 70s. They don't have to disprove anything. They only have to raise sufficient suspicion that it's true and their job is done, right? Because then we were not, then we're not going to act. And that's what mobile, Shell, a lot of the major oil companies, it's documented in their internal records, have been trying to do is raise sufficient question about the reality of climate change such, such that uh, no legislation, legislative action has been um, done or very little has been done. But uh, they will point to things like, well, the Earth's climate has always changed. How do we know that this is in some natural cycle? Um, things like that. That's generally what is what is done, or like volcanoes or something like that. Yeah, volcanoes would be a natural, mm -hmm. yeah, a natural phenomenon that would affect climate. And the reason that we know no, it's not those is because scientists are studying those and have shown that no, they're actually not changing. The only thing that changes is greenhouse gas accumulation. So you said earlier too. I thought uh, it was good. Um, so when you hear someone say, "Well, we know there's been cycles," and and then your your point was, well. How do we know that? Who are the people that are actually telling us that? Well, that's these people. Now then, what do they say right. about why that we have that right. problem? Just exactly continue right. that yeah. same line, and, and yeah. you'd say, those people are telling us right. that it's man-made. Yeah. yeah. In the back? Oh, to what we are doing as a church. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, uh, you know, I guess uh, one thing uh, that we did do with the building of the Fitchburg building was on the top, There's uh, we have solar panels up there on the top. So that was a uh, something that we decided, you know, that would be important for us to do. Um, moving away from paper as much as we can to digital things, that's been a, 
intentional move on the part of our offices here? Those are two things that just come to the top of my head right now. Can you think there, of? There are a number of decisions made in the construction of this building. We mm -hmm. didn't, we were offered and we didn't go for LEED certification, largely because it's very expensive to do so and we we're trying to cut corners. But there were many, many decisions made that would have contributed to LEED certification. We just mm -hmm. didn't go that extra mile. So a lot of what you see around us here were, were well, conscious a, decisions. Mm -hmm. Lots of, lots of glass, south-facing, that kind of thing. Different kinds of... I don't, off the top of my head, I just can't think of boom, 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 boom. But it, it's um, uh, energy and climate change have been part of conversations that we've had in terms of construction. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's Ed good. Brown. Ed Brown would be one. We support him and other people. So the point was made is that we support uh, people who are uh, they're involved in creation care around the globe and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back in the back, if you could be loud. That was pretty good. Did everybody hear that? Okay. What's your largest contributor to greenhouse gases? I would, I would say a couple of things. Um, the food you eat and how, how high on the food chain you, you habitually eat. And so, um, okay, true confessions, I eat meat. I like eating meat, but we've made concerted effort in the last five to ten years to reduce it. And now we use meat pretty much as a condiment in my family. Um, because meat production is, is causes, most meat production causes a lot of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Now, if you're going out and shooting your own venison, I, great, go for it. So what you eat is one of them. Um, transportation is another major one, how you're moving from point A to point B, what kind of vehicle, how frequently you drive it, et cetera, is another, another one. And then home Home heating, home home electrical and, and heating uh, is probably a third. Those probably are the biggest three. Ah, I think the verdict is still out on that because, as you well know, the electricity is most likely coming from a power plant that is burning fossil fuels, right? But they are definitely the wave of the future because we, we hope to get our power grids off of the sole or heavy reliance on fossil fuels and toward more renewables. And in that case, yes, then it would be uh, much, much better. Currently, I don't know. Somebody probably knows. Somebody has probably done the calculations. You might know. Chris drives an electric vehicle. No. I, I, I don't know. No. Save on trips to um, get your car repaired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Good point. Yeah. Oh. 
Go ahead and say that louder, what you just said. Good questions, really good questions. Uh, over here. So, yeah, okay, yeah. so is it because of COVID and the pandemic, is there any link between uh, the shutdown of, of, burn, of the reduction of fossil fuel production, of consumption, and climate change? Um, there definitely was a slowdown and a reduction in the emissions. That was absolutely clear, and that was measured worldwide. Um, now, we, we've caught back up and surpassed it, okay? Were there any detectable climate effects? No, and that's because our climate is not responding to what we're emitting now. It's responding to what we emitted 20, 30, 40 years ago, okay? And so it takes the climate a long time to equilibrate to these small changes in, in greenhouse gases. Well, about the only thing that I know that was being measured is that um, CO2 levels and methane levels, all of those greenhouse gases, their rate, the rate of increase, the rate of emission was down during that period. But that's, that's the only thing I'm aware of. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, good. This is good. Yeah, so what's the big deal about the temperature going up one degree, two degrees, things like that? Yeah, yeah that's really didn't cover much of that. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. You put me on the spot. <laughs> Damn, I'm not going to do that. All right. I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, I mean, good night. Our houses, every, everywhere we live changes by a whole lot more than that every day, right? I mean, so what's the big deal about one degree? The big deal about one degree is we're but the whole globe is going up one degree. And humans have never in human history inhabited a climate like what we have today. And we're never, in our, in our lifetimes, in our kids, we're never going to go back to what we had as kids. Because that one degree elevation contributes to all kinds of things that have been documented. And now there's a whole area of science known as climate attribution. So people are always arguing, well, that big hurricane or that drought or this tornado, or what, how can you say that that was caused by climate change? There's a whole area of science now that is able to say, um, for Hurricane Ian, 
X percent of the increase, uh, X percent of the rainfall was due to the uh, changing in climate over the last few years, or X percent of its duration or magnitude or strength or something. So that's a whole area of developing science. To get to your question though, um, very, very small changes in global temperature can contribute to wildly crazy uh, fluctuations in climate and climate-related problems. Take, take the western forest fires, for example. Those have certainly gone up. There's debate as to whether they're more frequent, but they are certainly more powerful, larger, and more damaging over the last 20 years than they ever were before. And that's with only one degree of warming. Think what's going to happen with three degrees of warming. And the thing about warming is the warming and impacts of warming are not on a one-to-one -one relationship. Warming will go up by one degree and the impacts will go up by, like, by one degree squared. Well, that's a bad example because one squared is still one. Let's <laughs> use two, okay? Two degrees, the impacts will go up by a factor of four. So the impacts go up faster than, do, than does the warming. The last time Earth's temperature was as it is now, I'm going to get these confused one way or the other, sea levels were 30 to 50 feet higher. The last time CO2 levels were as they are now, sea levels were 70 to 75 feet higher. Florida would not exist. Okay. And that's, was that a bad thing? Okay. She all right. said that's so there not we a go. bad thing. Yeah, that's where I would have gone, first of all. I would have gone with the rising sea. And so Bangladesh, for example, and places, uh, you know, where um, countries are just at sea level. The, and, and the people who are going to be affected the most are the people who are not are people of wealth. They, they're, that's there. They're there. And there's millions of cities filled with millions and millions of people and then mass destruction. So the devastation and the destruction to your family, life, your jobs, everything because of the rise of the sea. That's where I would have gone yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, good point. In general, uh, there is an inverse relationship between wealth and experiencing the impact of climate change. So worldwide, uh, the people who experience it the most are those who have the least resources to do something about it. Oh, yeah. So CO2 or carbon goes through natural cycles. Um, and some of it is in the atmosphere, but vast amounts are stored on land in the form of trees and grass and other things. 50% of the dry weight of a, of a plant is carbon. Um, vast, even way, way bigger amounts are stored in sub-ocean sediments, especially limestone and, and things like that. So there are these massive reservoirs throughout the earth that some of them take eons and eons to form, but uh, because of that, those cycles um, that sometimes it's higher in the atmosphere. No, that's right. Yeah. That's right, because there have been, there, as I think I said earlier, there have been, there have been documented extreme fluctuations in the Earth's climate in the past because of things like changes in the Earth's orbit, changes in volcanism that puts sulfates and other compounds in there. Uh, a lot of reasons. Uh, it's just that those are not explaining what we're experiencing today.
Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, red shirt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, so I'm not an engineer, and this is not my area of expertise. Well, it's not electric cars, I guess. <laughs> he's, he's never, never going to get off my case until I buy an electric car. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say... That's a good say, question. Yeah, yeah, very good question. I would say the various uh, solar and wind technologies uh, to provide uh, electrification mm. of the, the power grid are probably the most important things. Yeah. And, it's, yeah, they're, and they're, they're happening way faster than any, that technology is improving way faster than anybody would have said. It's now cheaper to produce new electricity from solar panels than it is from building new coal-fired fi coal fi coal power plants. We need to make that the last question. Sorry, Bob. Uh, it's uh, 8.59 now. So why don't we thank uh, Rick for uh, coming. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Pastor Chris Dolson and Dr. Rick Lindroth. Thank you to them both for having that conversation and for allowing us to release part of that as a podcast episode. We're grateful to both of them. If you want to continue to learn more, head to our series resource page on the website. The link is in the show notes. And we'll have more talks there from the Faith and Science Seminar that we held here at Blockhawk back in 2016. So more ways to engage, more ways to dig in on our series resource page. But yeah, hopefully you learned something new or have some things to think about as you came away from listening to that conversation. I know that I do, uh, as me and my family continue to think about how we will engage with this topic and care for God's creation. So hope it was helpful. All right. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.